Welcome everybody to the first episode of the Brains and Behavior Distinguished Lecture Series of the 2020-2021 academic calendar. Uh, my name is Greg Seuss. Uh, many of you have heard me before on other Brains and Behavior and Greg Seuss podcasts uh, before. I wanted to let you all know that uh, even though I have uh, defended my dissertation at Georgia State University, I will still be, uh, at least for the time being, hosting these podcasts with the wonderful lectures that we have for the Brains and Behavior Distinguished Lecture Series. Now, of course, in the past, we've always had our uh, guest speakers come to Georgia State, spend a few days here interacting with students and faculty, and then giving a presentation on their research course, with the whole COVID situation, most presentations across the board are virtual, this being no exception. So instead, we will be having the speakers, you know, have a, a lecture via a virtual software such as Zoom. There will be plenty of opportunities for students and faculty to meet with the guest speaker uh, in different virtual groups. Uh, but in addition, we will be doing this podcast with all invited speakers virtually as well. So it may be a little bit of um, a difference to what you normally have been hearing. Uh, I'm not going to be in the same room as these person as these people, so it might be a little uh, different. You know the cadence back and forth. Uh, we're working on the audio quality right now. You might find this uh, this first podcast to be a little subpar with audio, but we're working on it to try to give you guys the best experience possible. Uh, so with that, I'd like to introduce the first speaker that we have on today. It's Dr. Larry uh, Young, who is the William P. Timmy Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Emory School of Medicine, just right down the road from Georgia State. Uh, Dr. Young is a fantastic person. First and foremost, I've been able to meet him on a personal level. Uh, his wife, Ann Murphy, is a professor at Georgia State University whose lab, uh, I used to rotate in her lab, so I've known uh, Dr. Larry Young for uh, quite a few years now, but he's a fantastic professor who has focused his career on uh, social behavior and understanding aspects of uh, social bonding and social behavior. Uh, elegant type of research. There's many different directions that his lab and his group is going in. He's been very well funded uh, and also just a very personable person. You know, throughout the podcast, we talk a little bit about his research, but he's also very forthcoming about you know, what steps he took to get into the position that he is today. You know, he's a very open-minded person, has done a lot of really interesting things outside of uh, academic research that we touch on a little bit, and just a fantastic listen. I hope you guys enjoy, and if you have any questions about this podcast or any of the other future Brains and Behavior speakers coming out, uh, just feel free to, uh, to reach out to us. I'm more than happy to answer any questions. But that's enough of me talking. Here you guys go. I hope you enjoy Dr. Larry Young. So uh, I'm speaking with Dr. Larry Young. Uh, the William P. Timmy Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at the uh, Emory School of Medicine. So you're right down the road. Uh, we wish we could definitely have you in person, but this is a new thing, doing these podcasts uh, remote. So uh, thanks a ton for giving us the time, and we're really excited for your uh, presentation this afternoon. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Excellent. Um, so, you know, there's we're definitely going to dive into a bunch of the research that you have, but I want to start off with some of your... Uh, background, you know, getting into uh, psychiatry and neuroscience and uh, social behavior type work. Uh, originally, uh, so I, I know you went to undergrad here in Georgia. Are you originally from Georgia? 
Yes, I'm from South Georgia. Okay. Called Sylvester. I was going to say, uh, so you you made it all the way back around at one point in time. Uh, that's right. Yeah, I, I went to the University of Texas at Austin for grad school and then came back here to Emory for a short postdoc and was uh, lucky enough to be able to stay here close to home. Excellent. So you started out uh, in biochemistry, I'm pretty sure, and then you obviously transitioned into uh, you know more human sciences, psychiatry. How was that change apparent for you? Or, like, was the transition seamless, or was there like a certain course or a instructor that you had that really brought you into psychiatry and neuroscience? The, the reason that I'm in psychiatry is because my uh, postdoc uh, mentor was Tom Ensel, and he was a psychiatrist and uh, director of Yerkes at the time, and he was in, in the department of psychiatry. So um, it's not because I had any interest in psychiatry, and I still don't consider myself, you know, a human neuroscientist. Um, maybe I can tell you a little bit about why I'm doing what I'm doing, how I got here, and then um, maybe give you a little bit better feel of why I'm driven to do the things that I do. So, yeah, that, that's a good segue. So what was your biggest inspiration to jump into the research that you're doing? They, everyone says that if you're going to devote yourself to doing some type of scientific research, scientific rigor, there has to be an underlying passion. Did you have something that inspired you to do the work that you do? Yeah, it started when I was a kid. I, as a kid, I always had animals. I always had pets, snakes, and raccoons, and possums. And I also lived on a farm, so I spent a lot of times walking around the woods and just looking at animals, and I loved animals. And um, when I went to uh, undergrad, was majoring in biochemistry, you know, at first I, I wanted to be a veterinarian or a doctor. Those are the two kind of choices that I knew about. I didn't know about being a scientist very much, you know. Um, but when I was taking classes on about genetics and understanding biochemistry, you know, I was fascinated by biochemistry because you could explain life processes at a chemical level or a physical level. And, um, and then learning about uh, genetics and the fact that, you know, genes are encoded by this linear sequence of DNA, that was really fascinating to me. And, um, and I also realized that, you know, thinking about back about all these animals, these animals had different kinds of behavioral traits. They were born knowing how to, who to mate with, who to be attracted to. Um, and, you know, different species just have different personalities. Some are very territorial, some are very social. Some birds flock together in the thousands and some stay in solitary. And then I, I just realized, you know, sort of putting things together that the instructions to build that species, the brain, so that it behaved in a, the appropriate way, so that mothers knew how to take care of their babies, for example, and all these things, those instructions were laid out in that genome in the linear sequence of A's, G's, C's, and T's. So at the single cell stage, that, that cell had all the instructions to build a white-tailed deer or a quail or a bass or, or whatever, and for them to behave in their species typical way. So um, as an as an undergraduate, I said, ha, I want to link together biochemistry, the genome, and behavior and figure out why animals behave the way they do. And I'm not particularly interested in white laboratory mice. Um, so I, at the time, there was no internet, right? I couldn't do a Google search with people that are doing stuff. So I went to the library at University of Georgia, and I just found this book that had in it uh, about um, neuroendocrinology of reproduction by David Cruz. And the first chapter was on fish. And it talked about steroids and pheromones. And so to me, those were molecules. Those were biochemical processes. And I knew that steroids bound to steroid receptors and that that bound to a gene and then turned on a gene. 
And then that changed behavior. Uh, the book also had chapters on amphibians and reptiles and mammals and primates. And I said, wow, this is what I want to do. So I contacted David Cruz, the only person I contacted, and um, wrote a real letter. He said, I'd like to work in your lab. And uh, I went out to visit. And, you know, he studied uh, reptiles. He had projects going on with snakes and lizards and geckos and also turtles and I said, wow, doing steroids and steroid receptor stuff. And this is what I want to do. So I went to grad school trying to figure out, you know, the biochemistry of sexual behavior in lizards and actually studied homosexual behaviors in lizards. It's actually crazy that like you, you distilled, I, I, I keyed in on a point that you said earlier, you distilled just biology and behavior all the way down to just basic you know, like you said, A, C, T's and G's, you know, like just the combination of that is able to unlock the diversity of behavior. But then also, very interestingly, humans and mammals, you know, other types of mammals, we share similar genetic codes and similar structures in the brain, which we'll get to in a minute, which may underlie uh, behavior. So I know you said, you know, I'm not interested in what a, a mouse or a little rodent's doing in terms of behavior, but rather how it translate to you know human types of behavior and that's something that uh again we'll get into in a little bit but is a real important tool for just understanding science uh at, at ut i'm i'm interested um a former professor um he's since passed away walt lozinski at georgia state was a professor at ut for a period of time did you ever have any interaction with him while there yeah he was on my thesis committee oh he wow was a great thesis committee member um yeah so it was a it was a great pleasure to be able to you know have him come back here to atlanta and um he was he was just a wonderful guy yeah and what a small world i'm guessing you know people don't really think about connections that you make when you're younger but i'm guessing a lot of the connections that you made during grad school and your postdoc you're still interacting with those people today exactly yes those those connections that you make early on uh they'll last a lifetime even uh, people that i've interacted with say at society for neuroscience or sdn or different meetings uh when we were both grad students those are all now full professors and many of them are and uh we have still collaborations or you know we have to help each other out in many ways so those networks you, you can't imagine how important they will be for the rest of your career do you think it's going to be a lot more difficult to form those networks in this post-covid world you know maybe less in-person conferences and meetings like how do you see the relationship between new grad students or postdocs relating to faculty and people in the field when it's tougher to meet people in person. Yeah, I think it's difficult. It's going to be difficult for the next year, but I'm hoping that, you know, things will get back to normal in about, you know, if not 2021, 2022. Um, so I'm already planning meetings uh, uh, for 2022, and I hope those will be in person. Fingers crossed. Really, really hope so. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and really dive into some of your research. So you've made uh, a name for yourself studying social behavior, specifically uh, trying to model different aspects of social behavior in uh, rodent species. The one that pops up a ton are you do a lot of work with the monogamous prairie voles. And I'm curious, you know, humans, uh, we clearly, uh, for the most part in society, act in a monogamous way, but you don't really see that much in the animal kingdom. And I'm curious evolutionarily, what are some of the adaptations or the advantages of a species like the prairie vole engaging in monogamy? Or was that something that just happened to happen during evolutionary times? Uh, no, I think it's an adaptive uh, behavior. Just first of all, I want to say, you know, 90% uh, of birds are monogamous. 
Okay. So it's very common among birds. And um, in mammals, 95% of species are not monogamous. So why is the difference? Well, one, one big difference between birds and mammals is that for birds, both the mother and the father are equally capable of help, help rearing the offspring because they can both go get bugs or food and bring back. Once mammals began to lactate and you know, produce milk, nurse their offspring, then it was the, the, the female who was primarily capable of uh, rearing the offspring. And so uh, males typically then just, it was the most adaptive thing for them. But they, they could leave and the, the babies would still be raised. Um, and they could go maybe impregnate other females. So the, for the most part, for you know, if, if it's a bird, if the male leaves, then you get then you suddenly cut down half the amount of food that the babies are getting. Mm -hmm. um, so why is it adaptive? Um, in certain cases, um, um, well, one case has has to do with resources. So if it takes both the male and the female to cooperate together to get enough resources to raise the offspring, then monogamy is adaptive and that's the case in birds and i think it was probably the case in our ancestors uh, that because the babies are uh, so dependent on the parents for so long really long time um, it would be very difficult for a single mother to be able to you know raise the resources and everything to to raise that offspring so uh, if males were to cooperate and stay with the, with the, the partner until the offspring got to be four, five, six, seven years old, uh, it would be more likely that that offspring would survive. Yes, no, that that makes sense. It's kind of like the energy cost of you know increasing your fitness. Like you need to put that initial cost in order to raise uh, your yeah. young. So yeah, that makes sense. Uh, what the other the other, the other uh, reason that um, animals can become monogamous is for, is is that the male is um, able to protect the offspring from predators. So for example, you imagine if you're a vole in a, in a certain environment in the prairie and there are weasels that raid nests. So if a male prairie vole was not monogamous and he just mated with as many females as possible and all these females had babies and then they would, the females would go off and forage every day for food, uh, maybe all of these babies would get eaten by the weasel. Mm -hmm. Those that are monogamous or you know socially monogamous uh, they will, they can take turns and the male can help protect the nest and make sure that he may only have a few babies, but those babies were likely to survive. Now, I'm curious, you mentioned environment, you know, like you said, that where the prairie vole exists, does that mean that environment can dictate, uh, I guess, if you're monogamous or polygamous? Yes, so environment like, so for example, population density, if the population density is very, very low or goes very low sometimes, uh, then it can be hard to find a partner who is not already pregnant, for example, or whatnot. So, under um, those situations, or in the case of predators, um, they can select from an item. Now, so I think probably in our case, it was changes in our physiology and sort of the evolution of big brain and lung development and things like that that sort of made an argument more adaptive. But you know, if you look at prairie voles, you know, prairie voles are not very much different from meadow voles. They look the same. They're, they don't have different developmental time periods, um, but their environments are different. So, yeah, we we obviously know environment does play a role, but you did touch on the brain. So something must be different between, you know, a monogamous prairie vole versus a, a metal vole. And I know you have some work showing uh, it could both be in terms of different 
uh, brain circuitries, but probably more importantly, uh, receptor density of certain neurotransmitters. I was wondering if you could just give us a broad overview of what's going on with the uh, neurotransmitter system in you know, a monogamous species. Yeah, so first let me just say that this gets to the, uh, the, the, the reason why I'm studying the voles in the first place. Back to my original interest, I saw the voles as two different species that looked the same, but they had very different social behaviors. And so I thought, it's not that I was interested in monogamy or pair bonding or anything like that. I only saw this as two species with very different behaviors, but the genome must be very similar. And I wanted to spend my career trying to figure out what's different in the genome that could give rise to these differences in behavior. And that's what I've been studying. So the, so the prairie voles are very highly social and they form these lifelong bonds between partners. And metal voles, they look the same, but they're not that social. They prefer to be alone. They come together and have sex, but then after that, the mother raises the baby by themselves. And so it was a great opportunity to see what was different in the brains. And we knew uh, from work before I started working with the system that oxytocin was important for pair bonding as well as vasopressin. So these two molecules were important. And um, so we, we looked at first to see if there were differences in the amounts of oxytocin and vasopressin in the brain, and we didn't see much at all, much difference. Uh, but when we looked at the receptors, the density of receptors is very different between these two species. And um, in particular, for example, um, in the nucleus accumbens, the brain's reward system uh, pathway, dopamine pathway, uh, periboles have a lot of oxytocin receptors. Metaboles have very few receptors. Uh, if you look at vasopressin receptors, it's the ventral pallidum, which is the output of the nucleus accumbens. Periboles have a lot. Metaboles have very few. And these, both of these areas are involved in addiction. And I think that pair bonding is kind of an addiction to a partner. And there's very similar um, processes, neuronal processes that are involved in pair bonding and addiction. And one of the first studies that, that we did that really make this point was to take the vasopressin receptor gene from the prairie bowl, put it into an adeno-associated viral vector, and then inject that into the metal hole ventral pallidum. And we found that the metal holes then could uh, form partner preferences. So to me, that was like a revelation of like, hey, look, this is this means that a single gene, not 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 changes in the protein, but where that receptor is expressed, it makes different circuits be responsive to these peptides, which then you know modulates how those circuits are activated during things like mating. And that's what allows the animal to form a partner preference. That's that's so, the overlap with addiction. That uh, it's funny that you mentioned that. Like that 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 totally makes sense. The idea of you know being attracted or or having you know a sexual interaction with a partner falls under the same addiction pathway. And I'm curious, do other neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine do they does their receptor expression also differ in animals that are monogamous or like? How, does, how else is the addiction pathway well, follow so I, I don't know about serotonin and uh, norepinephrine, and they haven't really been studied in terms of pair bonding, so, but I'm, I'm sure that they have some uh, involvement. But the one that really is um, important is dopamine, right? So dopamine is involved in addiction, dopamine is involved in reward, and dopamine is involved in pair bonding. It's, it's not just oxytocin and vasopressin. You also have to have dopamine. It's the convergence of the two. and um, But... Dopamine receptors are not different between the two species much. I mean, there's some, some small differences, but it's um, the localization is not different. And that kind of makes sense because 
things are still are pleasurable to both. You, you still need sex to be pleasurable. You need the reward system to be functioning in all animals to drive them to do things that are adaptive. But what's special about the prairie bull and pair bonding is that you're linking the reward to the neural encoding of the partner. So now the partner cues um, are linked to the reward system and therefore the partner becomes inherently rewarding. And so oxytocin's functioning function is to funnel high resolution neural encoding of the partner's cues like the smell or the face into the nucleus accumbens. Then synaptic plasticity happens so that then now that person or that partner is inherently rewarding and the animal seeks that partner out. So what you're saying is similar to uh, drugs or addiction, not just the partner can elicit this response, but like you mentioned, uh, cues associated with the partner, perhaps the environment, discrete cues, those also act in a similar way. Right. Um, but, but in the beginning, it's mostly the cues of the partner, right? For the bowl, it's the smell. Each animal has a unique smell, and that's how they tell each other apart. You know, so when you walk your dog, and dogs are primarily nice, they smell each other. They have a lot of information that way. Now, now, recently, um, I've seen some reports come out that, uh, particularly with vasopressin and oxytocin, there seems to be a relationship between uh, the gut microbiota and signaling to these different um, areas of the brain that have high density of vasopressin and oxytocin. And there's also reports showing that perhaps part of the addiction system might occur as well, that changes in the gut can alter uh, dopamine projections in the nigrostriatal pathway. So have your group or have you seen anything that might relate to perhaps you know, factors outside the brain, like the gut microbiota, perhaps influencing this pair bonding phenomena. Yeah, but we haven't uh, done any work with uh, microbiota yet, um, but I think that's a really interesting uh, area for future investigation that you know, maybe students and uh, young young uh, investigators can bring to the to the whole system. I mean, you know, these animals live together, so they probably share uh, the gut microbiome or share certain features of that. And so whether that, you know, helps to synchronize them in some way or that's, that, that's a, a really interesting area of feature investigation. And in terms of development, you know, I, I'm thinking in terms of humans, you know, certain feelings towards a, a, a partner, you know, certain sexual feelings, they are perhaps dormant when you're young and mature when you get a little bit older. And, you know, there seems to be a developmental change in terms of you know, attraction, sexual involvement, is there a developmental change in the oxytocin, vasopressin circuitry or receptor profile that you've seen? Well, first, I think that this attraction that you're talking about, sexual attraction, um, that's as strong in a metal bowl as it is in a prairie bowl. It's as strong in a promiscuous animal as a non-promiscuous, uh, as a monogamous animal. And that's not about bonding. That's about sex drive. And that's driven by testosterone, steroid receptors, and Steroid receptors are very highly conserved across, you know, from fish to, to humans in terms of their location. And that's because they drive this fundamental process that needs to occur in all animals to be a sex, uh, attractive sexually to another individual. Um, so it's, it's only after that, when you become sort of um, enamored with somebody, and you can't stop thinking about them. You think about people that are in the, when they first get into a relationship, it's very much like someone seeking cocaine. You know, um, you, you, you can't stop thinking about that person. You always want to talk to them on the phone. You're always seeking out that person. Um, so, 
Yeah, so the, so the developmental changes that change in the sex drive are really the turning on of the steroids that then bind to the steroid receptors in the brain and then, you know, sort of activate the sexual circuitry in the brain. Okay. Um, it's funny, you mentioned, you know, you can't stand not being with somebody, you know, you're, you're just like, you're, you're, you're crazy about them and you feel kind of weird with, when you're not with them. And then you mentioned cocaine earlier. Would you say that in terms of pair bonding and in terms of, you know, social interaction, there is, I don't know the best way to say this, but kind of a withdrawal element as well. When you're not with that stimulus, when you're not with that other individual, you uh, experience symptoms of withdrawal similar to withdrawal from a drug or a food. Yeah, absolutely, and I'll talk about that in my in my talk today. Um, so what we found is that in, in bowls, uh, if you uh, t allow them to pair bond, but then you take them away from their partner, uh, they start showing depression-like behaviors. Uh, you put them in a forked swim test, and they just float. So you hang them by the tail, they just hang there. And uh, we found that that is due to an increase in CRF, corticotropin releasing factor in the brain when the partner is gone, and that CRF binds to the receptors on oxytocin neurons and shuts them off, inhibits them, um, so that they now have a withdrawal of oxytocin. So, yeah, being away from that partner it creates a negative affect and they become depressed. And um, we can reverse that if we, at the moment that we take the partner away, we infuse oxytocin receptor agonist or infuse, infuse oxytocin into the nucleus accumbens, the animals don't get they don't get depressed. So, uh, so is it fair to say then? So, is it fair then, in a way, to say that oxytocin and vasopressin they act kind of as like a, I don't know, a resiliency or a vulnerability marker towards an animal's social well-being? Yeah, maybe not a marker, but they they play a role in um, things that are that help make you be resilient. They're acting through the oxytocin system. Okay, and how chronic would you say these effects are? So, like. You know, you separate from, like you said, the mate and, you know, the CRF is binding to oxytocin uh, receptors. Are these effects like chronic? Like, are there long-term implications of this? Or is it kind of if you reintroduce uh, the other animal, everything goes back to normal? But yeah, if you reintroduce the other animal, everything goes back. And and I think in the case of humans, you know, we do the same thing. You know, when, when I leave uh, the country for two weeks or so, you know, I start feeling kind of homesick or missing uh and, and um, um, you know, when I come back, everything is, is better. Okay. Um, but but um, but sometimes pe people lose their partner to death or divorce, and they can't get that back. So, um, you know, humans have a much longer lifespan than, than bulls. And, you know, um, probably, uh, well, I think that having another partner that would release oxytocin uh, would sort of reverse that process. How would so, you how would you weigh social reward and drug reward in terms of its effects? You mentioned depression, stress. Like, which one seems to activate these depression or stress responses more? Like, could we say that social reward is actually a a tighter uh, circuit or more of a, a tighter bond than even drug reward? Um, I'm not sure if we can say that one is stronger than the other, but they definitely compete with each other. So. Um, uh, animals that take uh, their own amphetamine will uh, be less likely to pair bond. Um, animals that are pair bonded are less likely to uh, supplement or to drugs. So um, there is this, this sort of interaction. 
I just want to make the point though, of, you know, why why would this system evolve in voles so that they um, become depressed if they lose their partner because that makes them vulnerable to predation? And you know, I think that that is the long term effect of a very adaptive process that basically keeps these animals together in the pair bond for a long period of time. So I talked about oxytocin and dopamine interacting to create the link between the neural encoding of a partner and the reward system. And that's that's the very beginning of the bond formation. But what happens later on, you know, we know in relationships, the, the quality of relationship uh, changes over time in long-term relationships. In the beginning, it's like the very beginning of addiction. You can't stop thinking about the partner. Mm-hmm. But then later, it's much more um, sort of like you just feel bad about being away from your partner. And I think, for example, in these bowls, every day they have to go forage for food. Um, and what's to keep that bowl from just going out foraging and then just keep going to find another female or find another male? And I think that this system of withdrawal, just just like a, a junkie experiences withdrawal, and that makes him go back to using the drug. Although he may tell you he doesn't want to use that drug, but that that withdrawal is drawing him back. Um, with, that's what's drawing these bowls back to their partner every day. So we're so saying the yin and yang of Pair bonding and oxytocin, it is the, the beginning, the formation of the bond, and there's, there's this maintenance of the bond that uh, holds it together like glue. So it's kind of like a transition from positive reinforcement to negative reinforcement in a way. Exactly. Wait, that's crazy that it really follows a similar timeline, like you said, to like a, a junkie with a, a certain addictive drug. Like it, that, that's, that's nuts that it kind of follows like the same type of, I guess, trajectory as you could say. Um, I'm curious, most of what we're talking about, at least so far, uh, we're mainly discussing voles. And I'm curious, is the role for oxytocin and vasopressin similar in primates? Yeah, it depends on the primate. Uh, so, for example, well, I, I think in general, the role in voles, um, as well as in primates uh, and other species, is, is not just pair bonding. Um, when, when oxytocin interacts with dopamine in the context of mating, yeah, it's involved in pair bonding. But more generally, what oxytocin does is help the flow of information through the brain, social information. It makes social cues more salient. So in a rhesus cat who is not monogamous, uh, but social cues are very important still. They need to know where they fit in the situation. Oxytocin is very important. It's important in recognizing individuals. Uh, but if you look at marmosets, uh, marmosets are monogamous planets. And oxytocin does seem to play a role in that you know, pair bond relationship. And they have oxytocin receptors in the nucleus accumbens, uh, whereas rhesus cats do not. So um, yeah, I think the, the general role of oxytocin is really um, to, to facilitate the flow of information across brain networks. I call, I call it the grease of the social brain. <laughs> I was going to say, it probably just depends on what your social cues are. Every animal's social cues are, are different, so it's probably specific to where you are and what's adaptive to you. Right. So, for example, in, in mice with, uh, that are not monogamous, but you know, oxytocin is also involved in maternal care, um, pups, when their pups are off the nest, they emit these ultrasonic vocalizations. And for a virgin female, those are not particularly salient. They they're just another sound in the environment. Uh, but when if you can stimulate oxytocin release into the auditory cortex, then suddenly the auditory cortex becomes very highly responsive to pop calls. 
Well, those pawpaws now they rise in salience. And now that that female can't stand that, you know, she goes over and picks those pups up and brings them back to the nest. Um, so maybe um, mothers experience the same thing when they hear babies cry. When I hear a baby cry, you know, it's just another sound in the environment. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say that. No, no, I, I, I know exactly. We have a we have a little one ourselves, so I, I totally understand where you're coming from there. Um, curious, you you did mention the females. So is it fair to say, I, I know we don't look at every single organism, but is there a sexual dimorphism in the brain when it comes to oxytocin and vasopressin? And does that differ depending on, you know, primates versus rodents? Like, is there uh, maybe more of a tighter uh, vasopressin oxytocin between males and females in, let's say, prairie voles, but it's a lot more different when you look at rhesus macaques? Um, I don't, so I don't think there's much of a difference in oxytocin um, system between males and females in most species. Um, some there may be subtle differences related to steroid hormones, uh, but the, the sex dimorphism in vasopressin system has to do with vasopressin itself. So Hepterese did uh, work back, I think around 1983 or something, showing that a vasopressin system is very sexually dimorphic, um, with males having much more particularly in certain brain areas than females and that being uh, driven by testosterone. So, so I do think that vasopressin plays a more important role in uh, males than in females, but it's not exclusively different, but, um, but oxytocin I think plays a role in both. And let me just uh, take this, uh, take advantage of this uh, discussion to bring up this difference between what I think the fundamental differences between oxytocin and vasopressin function are. Oxytocin originally in mammals, at least, who's involved in maternal behavior, giving birth, you know, it causes uterus contractions, it causes the milk let down reflex, and it, then it causes the brain, you know, the, the mother to be uh, highly tuned into the baby and be responsive to, to that baby. Vasopressin, from work done by Elliot Albers, um, going way back, was uh, known to be involved in territorial behavior, scent marking, right? And um, so vasopressin is a very, is a very uh, male-typical macho social behavior peptide. It stimulates aggression, territorial behavior. Oxytocin stimulates nurturing. So oxytocin is kind of calming, you know, soothing. Vasopressin is induces vigilance. So their, their roles in pair bonding and volumes are somewhat different. So oxytocin is important both in male and female to create this nurturing bond, like a mother infant, but now it's just directed towards the partner. Whereas vasopressin is involved in the male's very territorial bond. This is my female, my partner. You be vigilant, stay, keep the other males away. Mm -hmm. So there's two aspects. So they kind of work together, you know, but they're, they're a little bit different from each other. Yeah, and again, like you said, depending on, you know, the species, like it's no surprise that voles and humans should have different you know circuitry or different roles i guess you like you said for for both of these molecules that it de depends on the species um right. i i definitely want to touch on this because i know it's uh probably key to your talk so you don't have to spoil everything but you know we are talking about social behavior a ton 
And one of the main implications to this for humans are social behavior deficits, like in, you know, Alzheimer, I'm not Alzheimer's, excuse me, autism spectrum disorder. And so, you know, if you want to give me the quick pitch as to what types of ideas are you thinking based on this understanding of vasopressin and oxytocin that we might be able to use to study some of the deficits in autism? Well, because um, of work like that we did and others showing that oxytocin is involved in social bonding and processing of social information, social recognition, people uh, many years ago started asking whether people with autism had uh, dysfunction in oxytocin system. And there were some studies that suggest that and um, and even there are studies in, in, in rodent models of autism that show that they have less oxytocin neurons. Um, but, but from my perspective, I come at it a little bit differently. I don't think that autism is caused by a lack of oxytocin. Uh, but, but what I do think is that, you know, if you take the mother uh, before she gives birth, um, maybe baby cues are not that salient, but when she gives birth and when she's uh, nursing that baby and that oxytocin is flowing in the brain, then suddenly social cues become very, very important, right? Like I said, it's the, it's the grease of the social brain. It makes you pay attention to social cues. Well, people with autism are, are awkward at social interactions. They tend not to look into the eyes. They don't read emotions very well, maybe because they're not attentive, maybe because eyes are not salient. Um, and so it, it suggests that maybe if you could activate the oxytocin system, regardless of whether there's a deficit in oxytocin in autism, but if you can increase it, like happens in a mother when she's nursing, then you may be able to increase the salience of social stimuli in a social setting. And uh, maybe, for example, even uh, during a therapy where, you know, therapy, behavioral therapy works better than any drug to treat the social deficits in autism, but it's takes a very long time. Mm -hmm. uh, but what if you could, you know, increase the salience of the therapist's interactions so that now that the person looks into the eyes, you know, oxytocin makes people look into the eyes of others. It helps them read emotions. And uh, maybe that will be um, you know, how you can increase the, you know, the effectiveness of behavioral therapy in disorders like autism. Or maybe even, you know, so the problem with oxytocin, though, is uh, sniffing oxytocin, not much of it gets into the brain. Mm -hmm. So I think that what we have to do is figure out, you know, the next generation uh, therapies, drugs that will target the oxytocin system somehow, either make the brain more sensitive to oxytocin or evoke oxytocin release, for example. Can it cross the blood-brain barrier? Is it possible to take something peripherally that can get to the brain? Yeah, there are things that you may have. Of course, there are lots of drugs that you can take peripherally that can get into the brain, but what you got to do is figure out one that can get into the brain and either bind to the receptors or stimulate release. So, for example, ecstasy. Uh, ecstasy gets into the brain uh, and it induces oxytocin release. Um, there are other effects, I and mean, not all the effects of ecstasy are, are due to oxytocin, but maybe some of the, I mean, for example, there are studies in rats that show if you take male rats and give them both ecstasy, they do something that they would never do. They sit there, they lay down together, and they maximize their skin contact. They just lay in the cage and just like they have that skin contact. Mm -hmm. If you block oxytocin receptors, they don't. Uh, so maybe that's a massive, you know, release of oxytocin plus some serotonin mixed in. Um, but yeah, so I'll I'll talk about you know one one drug that we've been working with that can induce 
oxytocin release endogenously, and there, I think that there are probably many others that you know we haven't just discovered yet. But I think that that's the that's the area, the future of this um, translational research is not trying to get more oxytocin into the brain. It's just not going to happen. But how to evoke endogenous release? Definitely seems like a better idea than giving ecstasy to uh, to patients. That definitely seems yeah, like a better idea. So we only have a few minutes left, so I just wanted to touch on some cool, uh, fun facts I found about you. Um, Anne told me that uh, a while back you actually went to uh, India to teach Tibetan monks uh, neuroscience, which that just seems crazy off the top of my head. I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about that experience. Yeah, I went with my daughter, and uh, we uh, went up to Dharamsala. We spent a couple of weeks teaching neuroscience to the Tibetan monks. Uh, these guys, you know, they most of them were born in uh, Nepal, or sorry, um, Tibet, and they crossed over the Himalaya Mountains when they were seven or eight years old to come to Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama is, to, to learn at the monastery. And they were adults now, and they... Uh, they wanted to know about the brain and uh, well, they also learned about evolution and lots of other things, but I was involved in teaching them about the brain. And uh, that was really, really a great uh, experience, you know, teaching them, uh, for example, about oxytocin and bonding and love and things like that. And all, many other aspects of neuroscience was and she actually got to meet the Dalai Lama. Wow. And uh, so the, and we put together a textbook, um, you know, so the, the Dalai Lama's current textbook uh, is about 2,500 years old, <laughs> right? So uh, he wanted, you know, another one, and he said he knows that science moves a lot faster than philosophy, sort of religion. Uh, so he wanted one that would, he realized it would only last about 250 years. So for the next 250 years, they're going to be using the, the textbook of the, of the facts that we believed six or seven years ago that's really that's awesome uh what anything they taught you that's helped you in your career well yeah i mean they, so when i would tell them about uh how oxytocin for example uh, induces maternal behavior in sheep that you can give oxytocin to a female sheep and she'll you know start taking care of her baby uh one guy raised his hand he said no that's not right he says i know how to induce maternal behavior in sheep you know that doesn't take care of their baby and she said you put a dog in front of it Wham. there you and go now the dog you know and so um and then i started thinking well yeah that's probably because that's that's eliciting you know chemical responses in that female brain somehow and then inducing the maternal behavior but you know, he didn't think about the, the brain aspect he didn't really care about that that's not important to uh, his experience but for me you know, hearing his experience, you know, and uh, maybe think a little bit differently about, um, you know, how the brain is working in terms of maternal behavior there. Well, final question I have right here. Uh, I don't know if you've been asked this before, but give me the pros and cons of being married to another scientist. <laughs> um, we have to block her so she can't hear the Yeah, part. I was going to say, we'll take this part after out afterwards. But I'm always, <laughs> yeah. No, I think, you know, the pros are, you know, we, we share experiences. So we know, you know, uh, we can relate to the stresses that the other one is experiencing about deadlines for papers or too many, you know, reviews or, uh, students, uh, problems or all these kinds of things. Um, so I, I, I have a hard time coming up with, uh, negatives, you know, um, 
sometimes we disagree about things. She she thinks that like the PAG is the most important part of the brain, and I think. Oh, well, of course it is, right? <laughs> That's big. You know, one of the big uh, points of arguing between us in our home. You know. Um, so I guess that's the most negative thing. That's funny. Yeah, I always think it's it's nice to be able to, you know, come home and really like, you know, if you're stressed about a grant or a student, you really have someone that can help uh, talk you through it. Plus, if there's any conferences where there's overlap like SFN or anything, you get to go with your family and they can enjoy it too. Yes, that's one of the best things. You know, we, we've traveled, you know, all over the world and went to Greece and um, Italy and, you know, Australia last year, and so we you know, swam the Great Barrier Reef together. So, you know, we get to see the world, and that's that's one of the advantages of being a scientist in the first place is being to travel the world. And I hope that comes back very soon. Uh, we were planning to go to Korea to this um, meeting on the neurocircuitry of social behavior this year, but it was it was canceled. So, um, hopefully, it will come back in 2022. But yeah, that's that's one of the great things about being there too. Finger, fingers crossed. I'm really hoping at some point we can get back to traveling. And if things things are definitely going on the right way. Some things aren't going the right way. That's a topic for another conversation. But yeah, going to conferences, meeting other colleagues, meeting new people who you might collaborate with in the in the future. Like that's some of the best parts of science. So let's let's really hope that we can we can get back to that sooner rather than later. Um, yeah. Dr. Young, thank you so much for your time. We really look forward to your presentation. This has been. Uh, fantastic. And I know you're right down the road. So maybe at some point we can uh, see each other again in person. But until then, just again, thanks for talking about your science. Okay, thank you. Awesome. Thanks. Bye -bye. Thanks so much again to Dr. Young for joining us today. Uh, you know, it's tough being able to do these podcasts uh, and not having the guest right in front of you. But thank goodness for Zoom, all these virtual conferencing systems were able to go ahead and, you know, I encourage everyone, even though we can't participate in these types of uh, talks and sessions in person, please go ahead and log on to Zoom, you know, watch these talks in person, listen to podcasts, still try to engage in the science. I know it's different, but it's a really good way to continue to touch base with what's going on in terms of really cool cutting edge research out there. So hopefully, you know, we'll get to a point where we all get to meet in person again. But in the meantime, hopefully this, uh, satisfies your appetite. So thank you again uh, so much for watching. Stay safe, everybody out there, and I'll talk to you soon.